Welcome to Damn Good Movie Memories with your host, Brian Davis. This podcast is the cure for your long commute and super boring workday. Hi. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. Wow. What in the dickens is going on around here? A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories, and I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. Who was driving it? I don't know. Curtis! It's coming after us! It was my first picture as a director. And you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. I just want to get the hell out of here. So come and spend some time with me and my friends at the Dixie Boy. Spend some time in the dark. Please don't let us be in the dark. Help me. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. And that's a promise. You're going to get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming and he is. Maximum king. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. Hey there, it's Brian Davis, and for this week's episode, we're going to cover the movie Maximum Overdrive from 1986. Now, the studio was Embassy Pictures. The release date was July 25th, 1986. The running time, 98 minutes. The rating is R. The budget was $9 million, and the box office was a bust, making back only $7.4 million, making it the 86th ranked film of 1986. Rotten Tomatoes, no surprise, gives it 17% rotten from only 12 reviews. Roger Ebert didn't bother to review the film, but I found an article from John Perales, who wrote for the New York Times at the time, and here's his review. When in doubt, Stephen King relies on disembodied forces, a poltergeist, telekinesis, evil spirits, and, in maximum overdrive, an all-out revolt of the machines. The glass-breaking, blood-spattering, flame-spurting melee opens today at Movieland 8th Street and other theaters. Mr. King's movie of his own screenplay takes place in Wilmington, North Carolina, a locale that allows him to indulge almost every dumb redneck stereotype, except one, there's no racial tension. As the Earth moves into a comet's tail, all of a sudden bank machines swear, vending machines turn soda cans into projectiles, diesel pumps attack garage hands and a heavily traveled drawbridge opens on its own power. Within the first half hour of the film, dozens of people meet their gruesome deaths. There is blood on every fender. Eventually, the action settles at a Dixie Boy truck stop where survivors of the carnage in town gradually gather. 
As per formula, there's a noble blonde boy, J.C. Quinn, in his baseball uniform, a noble young man, Emilio Estevez, a tough but tender hitchhiker, Laura Harrington, a pair of hick newlyweds, John Short and Yeardley Smith, and a cigar-puffing truck stop owner, Pat Hingle, and enough stray good old boys to fill any holes in the plot. From its midway point, the movie might as well be called Attack of the Killer Trucks. One, a toy store van with a demonic face on its grill, develops as much character as anyone in the cast. The trucks rumble and snort and chase victims off the road as heavy metal guitar chords from the band ACDC underline every collision. With bad guys like a drunken Bible salesman, the vehicles get downright vindictive. Luckily, the truck stop just happens to have a cellar full of heavy ordnance, the better to create spectacular flaming explosions and an underground escape route for the plucky survivors. Mr. King has an eye for the hints of violence in ordinary objects, from electric knives to lawnmowers to a Mack truck with a menacing canine above its grill. An ice cream truck, bloodstained, patrols decimated small-town streets, tinkling out the song King of the Road. Yet, by making the machine's malevolence so all-encompassing, so immoral, Mr. King loses the fill-up of retribution in better horror films. For the most part, he has taken a promising notion, our dependence on our machines, and turned it into one long car crunch movie, wheezing from setups to crack-ups. And that's the end of his review. So I didn't see this when it first came out back in 1986. I'm pretty sure I first heard about it in the late 80s or early 90s when I discovered ACDC. So I was told about this so-called awful movie where the entire soundtrack and score is performed by ACDC. So at the very least, I would like the music, and that's why I finally saw it. You know, So when I saw the film, it was actually at a friend's house who either had HBO or Cinemax. And we were totally amused by the ridiculousness of this film. And I loved the exclusive tracks that were recorded for the film, especially Who Made Who. So let's get into the main cast. Of course, there's Emilio Estevez, who plays Bill Robinson. And Estevez was by far the biggest star in the film after appearing in some well-known Brat Pack flicks of the 80s, like The Breakfast Club and St. Elmo's Fire. However, you can't forget the cult classic and hilarious Repo Man from 1984. So I'm not sure if Maximum Overdrive is fondly remembered by Estevez, but it's definitely memorable, as we will discuss in this episode. Pat Hingle plays Hendershot, and Hingle was definitely the elder statesman of this cast as he started in film and television in the mid-1950s. He mostly appeared on TV shows throughout the 50s and 60s, but had a great movie role as the judge in the film Hang 'em High from 1968 with Clint Eastwood, whom he was uh, good friends with. He would continue to be a stalwart on television as a character actor for most of his career, but he also landed some great uh, roles in the Elvis biopic with Kurt Russell playing uh, Colonel Tom Parker. Other notable movies that he was in include Norma Ray with Sally Field, Sudden Impact, which was a Dirty Harry movie, of course, with Clint Eastwood, and then Brewster's Millions with John Candy and Richard Pryor. Laura Harrington plays Brett. Maximum Overdrive would definitely be one of her most notable film roles, the other being What's Eating Gilbert Grape, where she plays one of the Grape Kids, and that was probably her other most notable role. Yearly Smith plays Connie, and she was actually an up-and-coming actress in the 1980s, but now is best known for her voice acting, most notably as the voice of Lisa Simpson on the television show The Simpsons. For her acting work prior to Maximum Overdrive, I definitely first saw her in The Legend of Billie Jean from 1985 with Helen Slater and Christian Slater. No relation, though. 
Director and writer, of course, is Stephen King, and this was King's first and only movie he directed. This film was based on a short story called Trucks that was published in a 1973 issue of Cavalier magazine. And so it kind of goes without saying that King is one of the most successful and prolific writers in literary history. Many of his novels and short stories have been adapted to film prior to Maximum Overdrive. They include Carrie, of course, The Shining, Creepshow, Cujo, The Dead Zone, Christine, Children of the Corn, Firestarter, Cat's Eye, and Silver Bullet. Also, in 1986, one of his most successful and beloved adaptations was released, Stand By Me. Alright, so let's get into the making of the movie. This was the fifth movie for Dino De Laurentiis and King. They did uh, The Dead Zone, Firestarter, Silver Bullet, and The Cat's Eye. Stephen King would often be so frustrated about writing scripts that simply didn't translate his ideas to screen. So De Laurentiis suggested that King direct a film himself, and Maxim Overdrive was born. Stephen King was a massive ACDC fan, and even in his screenplay, he would have references to specific songs. I can only assume they probably had these songs blasting away in the background when he was writing. So even the lightning bolt in the ACDC logo was the power that would drive Maximum Overdrive, and the band was actually excited to hear that a full movie score would exclusively be their music. So King offered the band a role to appear in the film, but they declined, saying that they're not actors, and they didn't want to appear in the movie at all. There were claims that there was a scene of them on the boat, but that's actually not true. So the band did agree to do the soundtrack after Stephen King actually sang Ain't No Fun Waiting Around to Be a Millionaire, of course, from their 1976 album, Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap. And he sang the entire song from start to finish, and the band was just cracking up, and they agreed if he was such a fan and he's been willing to do that, that they had to be in, you know, be part of the film, and they were. So the stunt drivers on the film would be hidden on the floor of the truck so that the camera wouldn't actually see them driving. But they were still driving the vehicles. It wasn't actually a remote control. But today, CGI would just be used. And I'm not sure that it would be any better. It would just be easier for the filmmakers. So Laura Harrington said the toughest part of the shoot were the Italian cinematographers who would often talk during shots. See, in Italy, looping is the norm. And looping is putting in the dialogue after the film is done. However, this isn't the norm when doing U.S. films, so U.S. actors aren't necessarily used to this. The majority of the movie was filmed in Wilmington, North Carolina, and this is where De Laurentiis' studio was. Emilio Estevez was very good friends with Tom Cruise at the time, and Cruise actually showed up on set and knocked on Harrington's door to her trailer, and they ended up going boogie boarding with him. And that's how she actually met him. And supposedly Demi Moore was on set because her and Estevez were dating at the time. Actually, as crazy as the machines go rogue idea of this movie was, this is essentially what's happening now in some ways. You have self-driving cars, everyone's addicted to their phones, stuff like that. This was another film helped by the advent of cable TV. Uh, films that bombed at the box office initially sometime had a whole new life on cable, and this was one of them. So the actor Holter Graham, who played the blonde-haired kid Deke, he had auditioned for a movie prior to Maximum Overdrive with Sissy Spacek and Kevin Kline called Marie. Graham didn't get that job, but Spacek liked him so much and helped him get other auditions like on Silver Bullet and Stand By Me. And then he finally landed the role in Maximum Overdrive. So this is one of the best stories I heard about the making of the film. So Holter Graham said during the shooting, he walked by Stephen King in between scenes and King had a little mini computer with him and he was typing away. 
and Graham asked him how he was doing, and King said he was working on a really good one about a clown. And of course, he was writing a novel about it. And that's what a genius he was. He could write a classic while in the middle of shooting a film. Awesome, just awesome. So if you watch this movie, it seems like the weather is just sweltering, and it really was. It was over 100 degrees with humidity. They were filming in July in North Carolina. Does not sound like fun. So ACDC had always been against doing greatest hits albums, and to this day, they've never really done one. However, they have done two soundtracks with past hits. They sort of felt like greatest hits albums were a ripoff. So the song Who Made Who was really a nice comeback for them, and it was by far the most popular thing from this film was the soundtrack in that song. So Stephen King said in 2002 that he was coked out of his mind through all of its production, and he really didn't know what he was doing. And he was asked why he hasn't directed a movie since Maximum Overdrive, and King simply responded, well, just watch Maximum Overdrive. <laughs> All right, let's just get right into the movie. Uh, The film starts with the following text covering the planet Earth. On June 19, 1987, at 9.47 a.m. Eastern Time, the Earth passed into the extraordinarily diffused tail of Rhea M, a rogue comet. According to astronomical calculations, the planet would remain in the tail of the comet for the next eight days, five hours, 29 minutes, and 23 seconds. So then a green film covers the shot of Earth, and we can only assume this is the rogue comet. A lot of the movie doesn't make sense at all, so while I'm giving you the details of the plot, please don't overthink it. I don't think Stephen King really overthought it either. So the prologue and the epilogue were added after the film was shot. King kind of wanted a Hitchcock uh, birds type of vibe, where the attacks were never explained. So then we cut to a bank in Wilmington, North Carolina, and there's a digital sign outside the bank which shows the time and weather, and then it suddenly changes to the message, fuck you, which frankly is probably the first time the bank has ever displayed truth in their advertising message. So then a man, played by actually Stephen King, tries to take cash out of the ATM, and then he receives a message that says, you are an asshole. (laughs) Again, this is the first bank that really tells the customer the truth about how they feel towards their customers. Honey, come on over here, sugar buns. This machine just called me an asshole. So then we cut to a soundtrack exclusive, the song Who Made Who from... The amazing ACDC is a great underrated track from the Brian Johnson era. So immediately strange things start to occur with the heavy machinery. The drawbridge starts to go up on its own, which causes mass chaos and accidents. So you get a terrific 80 slow motion as motorcyclists fall into the river, and you get more slow motion as a truck falls through the bridge and into the water. A truck full of watermelons dumps its loads all over the, all over everyone. It's great. It's, it's real fun to watch. One of the cameos on the bridge is Marla Maples, who was later married to Donald Trump, and she actually gets hit with the watermelons. Then we see a main character, which is the truck. It's the Green Goblin, big rig truck, which says Happy Toys on the side of it. The driver of the truck is named Handy, played by Frankie Faison, 
and he pulls into the truck stop to fuel up and get something to eat at the diner. And so you might remember Faison as Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall's landlord in Coming to America. The real main character is Bill, of course, Emilio Estevez, who works at the Dixie Boy truck stop and is at the grill cooking. His boss is Hendershot, that's Pat Hengel, and he's pretty much the main villain in the film, but more on that later. So inside the game room, the machines just start to go berserk. The pinball machine self-combusts. The cigarette machine, remember those, starts to spit out packs of cigarettes. Outside, the gas pump suddenly shuts off while trying to fuel the Green Goblin truck. The attendant tries to clear the nozzle, and then when he looks at it to see what could be causing the clog, the diesel fuel just shoots out of the nozzle and it blinds him. Of course, Hendershot is less than sympathetic to the injured worker. He's also trying to screw over Bill. So he's telling Bill to work nine hours and only clocking at eight. And since Bill is an ex-con and he's on parole, he really doesn't have a lot of choices and has to put up with his shitty boss. So while covering Bill at the grill, the waitress Wanda June, who's played by Ellen McElduff, gets attacked by an electric knife, which slices open her forearm and then falls to the ground and slices her foot. Bill then smashes the knife with a hammer. We then head back to the video game room, and this guy's playing video games, Giancarlo Esposito, and then he's electrocuted by the video game, which is called Star Castle. So then we cut to the Little League field, and two teams are playing in jeans. <laughs> I remember those days. And then we get one of the most famous scenes of the film where the soda machine starts firing sodas at the coach and the kids. And the coach is killed with a huge soda can dent in his forehead. Then a kid is run over by a random steamroller. We then get the second original of the ACDC tracks called Chase the Ace. Come on, sodas. I'm buying So for the vending machine scene, soda cans were actually made of foam and they were shot by an air gun. And the kids on the set loved to shoot and also get and also get shot by them in between scenes. It was a fun little mechanism. One stunt that actually happened by accident that didn't make the film was during the coach getting killed by the shooting uh, shooting soda cans. They had makeup that had a can-sized wound on the coach's forehead. 
However, by accident, the holes in the wound got filled and the blood packs started to fill up without actually being released. So what happened was this giant welt started to form on his head. All the while, the blood finally starts to seep out before it finally just gushes out. That would actually have been cool to see in the final shot. There were two steamroller scenes at the ball field. One had no blood involved in it, but would have been awesome to see. So the dummy head that of the kid that gets run over, uh, he was actually filled with slices of uh, cut up uh, seat cushion foam. So when the roller went over the dummy, the head actually popped off and explodes with this white foam going all over the place, which kind of looks like brain matter you know, spewing all over. So Dean Gates, who's the special effects guy on the film, said it was more gory than actual blood. The other version of the scene had gallons of blood bags attached to the dummy. And then when the roller goes over the dummy, the bags are kind of like a geyser of blood shooting all over the place. And then the grass had a trail of blood throughout it. The movie could have been way more gory than what actually ended up in the film. So going back to the film, we, we next we see Brett, who's Laura Harrington, and some Bible salesman who picked her up hitchhiking and keeps trying to make passes at her. So they finally end up at the truck stop. And next we cut to a recently married couple driving down the road. That's Connie, uh, played by Yardley Smith, and Curtis, played by John Short. They stop at another gas station and find the attendant dead with his head smashed in. Of course, then a tow truck starts driving without a driver and tries to run over Curtis. John Short actually thought the truck would be nowhere near him, so he asked Stephen King if he could do the stunt. And King agreed, and part of the truck actually came very close to hitting Short when a part of the truck came off after the crash. And after that, no more stunts for Short. So then the randomness of this movie continues. So Brett basically hits on Bill, saying he's cute, as he as uh, Bill's kind of looking at the Green Goblin truck. Nothing about this movie really makes sense. However, it doesn't hurt when you have, you know, ACDC blasting in the background. So it kind of cures all ails, especially for me. So then we get a third original song for the movie. It's called DT. The only baseball kid that's still alive is Deke, and he was the only one that wasn't killed on the ball field. So he's riding his bike around town. He's seeing that everyone is dead outside their houses. It's like the apocalypse hit. So Deke tries to evade an ice cream truck and then is chased by a gas-powered lawnmower as he bikes away. Deke's dad is the attendant that was actually blinded by the diesel fuel uh, while trying to leave to find his son, and then he's run over by one of the trucks. And as we find out, the trucks won't let anyone leave the truck stop. So the next victim is the scumbag Bible salesman who gets hit and then flies into a creek bed. There's another great chase scene with the newlyweds getting chased by a Mack truck while Chase, uh, the song Chase the Ace is, is playing. And ACDs can actually make any movie better. This is a perfect example. And it's sort of funny to hear Yardley Smith act hysterical. It's kind of like Lisa Simpson yelling at her husband. But she's still hilarious in this film. So Hendershot, because why not, owns a missile launcher because, <laughs> well, of course he does. Uh, he decides to fire a few missiles at the trucks, which only pisses them off more. And by the way, the cost of diesel fuel back then, a dollar eight a gallon. 
So Bill and Brett find Hendershot's huge stockpile of weapons in the basement of the truck stop, and we find out why Bill was arrested in the first place. You tell little road twitchy about your illustrious career? Oh, he's a bloodthirsty criminal, all right, regular John Dillinger. God damn you. Couple of Charlotte cops caught him in this little bitty grocery store. Sack of money in his hand, thumb up his ass, big grin on his face. You want to get out of here, boy? One call, I'll get you out of here. Oh, yeah, who you gonna call, huh? The North Carolina State Police? Now, listen, I don't want to play any goddamn games with you, Hendershot. I just want to get the hell out of here. I'm warning you, boy. No, no. I'm warning you. This thing's over your ass is grass, boy. Grass, you hear me? Joey! God damn you, Joey! I told you to keep eye on them keys! I owed guys some money. I was about 20 at the time. Not real bright about most things. Hey, it's all right. No, it's not. You know what gets to me is the stupidity. Cops put that spotlight on me and I just froze like a rabbit. Hey. Hey. It's all right. Honestly, does it even matter why Bill was arrested? I don't think anyone really cares about the backstory of any of these characters. I think the only thing that can make this movie more random is if ACDC's tour bus showed up and they started playing a concert at the truck stop. So Bill and Brett hook up because if you're going to die, you might as well go out with a bang. Pun totally intended. The sky outside starts to turn green, the same color as the beginning credits. These special effects are not too special. Not surprisingly, the song that plays after Bill and Brett hook up Sink the pink. And then you have Wanda the waitress freaking out. They can't. They made them. Now look, honey, you've gone and hurt yourself. Now come on, sweet thing. Don't you sweet thing me. Now Wanda June, baby, just... They can't. We made them. You can't. We made you. So Deke is smart enough to find a sewer drain in order to get from the highway to the truck stop. Also, the Bible salesman isn't actually dead, but lying injured in the creek. The trucks are driving in a circle surrounding the truck stop. Bill and Curtis attempt to save the Bible salesman, while For Those About to Rock, We Salute You plays. The movie actually might have been better without any dialogue and just nonstop ACDC, like a 90-minute music video. It, it actually might have made more sense, to be honest. <laughs> Anyway, Bill and Curtis find Deke and rescue him. By now, the Bible salesman is dead. Interestingly enough, the best acting actually comes from Holter Graham, who plays the kid Deke. This was his film debut as well. Really, the movie sort of reminds me of those sci-fi B-movies from the 1950s. There's kind of a certain charm to those films because you know they're bad. In many ways, if you think of Maximum Overdrive like that... I think you'll enjoy the film a lot more. So Hendershot gets his as you get an amusing scene where a military-style rifle connected to a cart 
decides to shoot and kill him. Wanda goes nuts again, but for the last time. Deke shows his usefulness by translating Morse code that is being transmitted through the rifle cart. The message says they need fuel, and if the humans refill them, then the hostage situation ends. Alright, you bastard. Tell all your friends the main line's open. I got the best shit on the East Coast, practically uncut. You got that fuck face? So the grueling day of fueling begins with Hell's Bells playing over the montage. I love it! Trucks from all over the surrounding cities appear to be fueled up. And then the station runs out of gas, which does not go over well for the trucks. One cool thing that isn't on the soundtrack are these little blues licks from Malcolm and Angus Young that play a score from time to time. So at the end of this episode, I'll play a montage of these quick bits. Usually uh, in these episodes, I avoid spoilers, but this plot is so flimsy, does it even matter? If you choose to watch the movie, it will be for the cheese factor, pure and simple. Anyway, the group decides to sneak out of the truck stop through a sewer pipe while Shake Your Foundations play. And with one of the most anticlimactic endings ever, Bill shoots a missile at the Green Goblin and blows him up. Yep, that's it. All After all that buildup, it's, uh, it's a pretty weak payoff. So then the movie ends with the following message as Who Made Who plays. Two days later, we find out that a large UFO was destroyed in space by a Russian weather satellite, which happened to be equipped with a laser cannon and Class 4 nuclear missiles. Approximately six days later, the Earth passed beyond the trail of Rhea M, exactly as predicted. The survivors of the Dixie Boy truck stop are still survivors. I mean, that epilogue just totally clears everything up, right? I mean, well, how come then the boat with an engine lets them drive away unharmed? Eh, whatever. The credits play You Shook Me All Night Long, which actually did eventually lead to an updated music video for the band back in the day due to this soundtrack. All right, some fun facts about the film. The original scripted ending had the Dixie Boy survivors deal with, with one last obstacle before escaping, a machine gun mounted Coast Guard boat. There was also to be one last shot of the city of Wilmington being destroyed by the machines, rumored to have been done via a matte painting. Stephen King originally wanted to cast Bruce Springsteen in the lead. Gary Busey was interested in starring the film as well, which actually makes more sense. All right. Is this movie great? No. Is it a lot of fun? And you know, as I said before, if you treat it like one of those classic sci-fi movies, those B-movies from back in the day, I think you'll enjoy this film a lot more. And plus, if you love ACDC, I think it's pretty cool hearing a score of just ACDC. So we get two great guests to talk about the film. First, Keith Rochford, and then Stephen Michael from the Growing Up Rock podcast. Have a lot to say about this, and we have a good time chatting about the film. And I will be back next week to talk about a yet another classic from my DVD collection. All right, we're back with Keith Rochford. Welcome back. Hey, Brian. How are you? Great, great. So you were on for License to Drive. So we needed to get another questionably good or bad movie from the 80s. And this time we're going to talk about Maximum Overdrive. One, do you even like this movie? And two, when was the first time you saw it? 
I saw it, is excited to rent it, you know, the Green Goblin truck on the cover, on the VHS, and wanted to see it because at that time in my life, 86 and all that, you know, being like 14, 15, all that, all I wanted to watch was horror movies. Right. Any kind of horror movies, whether they were good, bad, indifferent, and was excited to watch it. It had ACDC in there for music, and I was totally let down. <laughs> so were you just like, man, this is just a piece of shit, or was you like, eh, it's 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 really campy, it's cheesy, uh, and then re- maybe I'll revisit it later. I, I found it to be very cheesy and just kind of meh. Mm-hmm. I think because in when I was watching it back in the day, I was, I was comparing it to like, you know, the the Friday the Thirteenth, sure, and, you know, Nightmare on Elm Streets, and you know, slasher flicks and any other movie that had blood and guts. And this really didn't have it. I mean, even the, the crash scenes in the beginning were really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And, and then it just became like, I'm going to sit in a diner and trucks are going to drive around it until we figure out how to get out of here. Right. It is kind of fascinating. And then we find out later that Stephen King, cause he directed and wrote this, uh, was super, uh, on, he was, uh, really coked out. Like he was on cocaine the entire movie. And so, uh, there's probably a reason why this movie is as haphazard as it is, but I do like the scene, the death scene on the baseball fields. Those are, that's probably the best. Those are the best scenes. Yeah. I, I those to me, they were funny. Yeah, exactly. Like I'm, I'm watching it. I'm like, how does the bike just stop? You know, and then the kid has to fly over it and then get stuck by the, the, I guess the, steamroller or whatever that came through those the billboard but like the bike isn't an electrical thing so why did that stop and like i'm sitting here watching it the other day before we were, we were talking i'm like how come some cars are still not running and others are alive and attacking people right this doesn't make sense to me cocaine's a hell of a drug but they yeah they, i guess the, the some of the scenes were supposed to be way more gory like when the kid gets run over by the steamroller they were supposed to have actually a dummy and there was gonna be blood all over the field and they just they couldn't do it so that got all edited out but there's some great outtakes or at least storyboard ideas that they could have had from it uh of this are you a stephen king movie fan you know what? i've only seen a couple different ones okay um, I, I liked salem's lot carrie uh, I've seen bits and pieces of Christine, but that one never held my my attention. I'd say my probably the favorite would be Shining. Okay, yeah, because yeah, you definitely had the non horror ones like Green Mile and Shawshank Redemption, things like that. Yeah, I mean those those are classic movies. But you yeah, it's initially when you say Stephen King, people just immediately go to the horror stuff right away. Which is funny because yeah, I mean that's but his most successful films are the non horror. Are yeah. Yeah. Um, so when was the last time you saw this and does it get any better in the sense of, OK, I kind of see the camp in this. So I probably hadn't seen it in close to 15 years mm-hmm. and I watched it the other day and I, all I wrote was cheesy horror flick. It does not hold up. And this is coming from a guy that, you know, will watch Hellraiser nonstop <laughs> or Motel Hell, if you even know what that one is. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and that's cheesy as hell, too. And, and this one just I mean, I, I couldn't get past some of the scenes. It was just really bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you feel about Emilio Estevez in this? I can give her to he for his acting in this movie. was just kind of like it, it could have been anybody. Yeah. And that's what I figure. I mean, he was a pretty big star at this point. And so it just seemed like he was either underused or I don't know. I can't explain it. Yeah, he was definitely underutilized. I mean, he has a different than just 
you know, the, the, the brooding character. I mean, it was kind of like, it was, it was like his character in breakfast club mm-hmm. went to jail for some reason. And that was the job that he got on parole and maximum overdrive. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and speaking of plot points, I mean, all of a sudden, like, so the, the girl Brett shows up and magically they just have a fling. Like it just, it makes absolutely no sense. Like there's, I, there's not even an immediate attraction. It's like, okay, you're a guy, you're a girl. That's we, we have to hook up at this point. We're surrounded by trucks. I guess we might as well just hide out in the basement and do it. Right. right. <laughs> so the other interesting part and the kind of fun part is uh, Yeardley Smith, who of course plays Lisa. She's the voice of Lisa Simpson on the Simpsons. She's, she's actually annoying, but funny in this film. Oh yeah. What was it? Curtis? Are you dead? Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. I'm like, really? But then I laughed at that one. But at least that was probably the highlight of the film was her. Yeah, absolutely. And, and Pat Hingle, who plays Hendershot, he's so he's actually great as a villain. You really do hate him. Oh, yeah. And then I'm like, I, I can't I, I hate him in this. But then he's Commissioner Gordon to me. That's right. That's a good point. That's a great I mean, point. So, I mean, he, he's always Commissioner Gordon in my mind. But, yeah, he was definitely the guy that you're going to hate in the movie. You're like, Yeah, he needs to get killed. So let's go back to the soundtrack. Did you buy the the soundtrack for Who Made Who and the and the two other songs, or or were you already an ACDC fan at this point? Uh, I bought that. That was mm, I'm trying to think of the timeline. I I knew of ACDC. I had my first ACDC record that I ever bought was Fly on the Wall. Oh wow! Because that because like whatever local video show that was on was showing um, was it Sink the Pink and Danger? The, yeah, exactly. So I saw those. I'm like, oh, I like these songs. So I bought the cassette of that. I think after that, I went back and bought Dirty Deeds because I I recognized that song. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, oh, who made who? I heard I saw the video for that on MTV at that point. I'm like, I'm going to get this. So I I guess that was probably my officially first one that I waited for to come out. And for me, it was perfect because then it had You Shook Me All Night Long and Hell's Bells. Right. It was kind of like the greatest hits, and I'm like, this is really cool. I like this, and that that kind of made me go back into ACDC. Yeah, it's really interesting because they've never done a greatest hits album uh, proper. They've done two soundtracks, of course, Who Made Who, and then they did one, I think, for Iron Man 2, which is basically a greatest hits. There were new new songs on it, uh, but they kind of packaged it as a uh, soundtrack. But this was great because the... The two instrumentals are really cool. And then there's actually stuff that isn't on the soundtrack that they play throughout that just like score that I think is really well done. Yeah, I, I still enjoy the Who Made Who record. Those instrumentals, you would think that when you say ACDC and instrumental, you're like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Right. You know, and I'm like, those are probably more interesting than some instrumentals from other bands that, you know, can play circles around them. There's just some, there's a groove and just a feel and swagger to the way Angus plays and it comes through on those songs. That's right. That's right. And what's interesting is, yes, they do put, you know, uh, You Shook Me All Night Long and Hell's Bells and For Those About to Rock, but then they actually throw in a deep cut and that's right on, which was actually very interesting. Which, after getting Dirty Deeds, I knew that song, so I'm like, Mm -hmm. oh, I and I still to this day love that song. You feel the emotion from from Bon Scott on that one. It's like it's like gut wrenching. Yeah, it's interesting that there's one Bon Scott song on this, and this it's right on. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. of all the songs from him, you would think surprisingly it wasn't Highway to Hell. Right. Maximum Overdrive, Cars, Trucks, No Highway to Hell. Or if you want blood, that would have been good, you know. <laughs> yeah, <something>. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> or yeah all sorts of good stuff but and of course you, you knew they were going to put on the the a couple singles from find the wall because they were still pushing it at that point 
Oh, yeah, I think that was why they had to do that, because it didn't do anything for him. Yeah, absolutely. So would you go back and watch this, or was this like, I'd rather listen to the soundtrack, and I never need to see this again, and thanks a lot, Brian, for making me watch this again. Uh, probably wouldn't watch it again unless it was on, you know, TV, on cable. I may leave it on, mm-hmm. depending on what scene it's on. I'll definitely listen to the soundtrack more than watch the movie. But I don't mind going back and revisiting because I probably liked it back in the day. And now I understand why when I would rent those movies and my mom and dad would watch them with me, they'd be like, oh, God, not really. <laughs> again, I got to watch this crap. I, you know, I really enjoyed because I, I just bought it. Uh, not just, but I think it came out last year. They reissued it on Blu-ray and there's all these great special features. And I think anything, uh, you know, with that, that has a lot of depth into it, even if it's a bad movie, you, you kind of appreciate it more when you get into the really in-depth parts about it. Yeah, I mean, don't get me wrong. I, I enjoy bad movies, too. This Sure. One is- I probably because I don't have any kind of, you know, that attachment to it with the the special features and that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and whatever. Like I, to me, I'll I'll watch. Was it Trick or Treat? Anytime. Oh yeah. And that yeah. that's a bad bad movie. <laughs> I wish they would re- release that back on not even just Blu-ray but DVD as well. Like that. I think it's pretty much out of print at this point. And I still have my copy. Oh lucky lucky. But lucky. My five dollar probably whatever been and now it's probably worth like 40 or something like oh that. easily easily so well i hope they release it because they if they release it we'll be talking about it on this podcast so there you go that is right that is <laughs> right yep <laughs> another great soundtrack too there you go fastway gotta love them as always thank you so much keith thank you brian for having me i appreciate it all right we're back and we got a very special guest of course from the growing up rock podcast it's steven michael back for a return engagement how you doing steven I'm doing awesome, Brian. What's going on? My man with the plan, Brian Davis. <laughs> well, it's great to talk to you. And so we're going to talk about the uh, the classic, and dare I say classic, Maximum Overdrive, directed and written by Stephen King. Now, the, the first thing I'm going to ask you is, did you see this movie because of Stephen King? And, and did you like his novels? Or was it because of ACDC? No, flat out, it was because of Stephen King. At the time he was putting all these movies out, I was a huge uh, Stephen King fan, and I'll be honest, I'm the guy that goes, why read a fucking book when you can watch the movie? <laughs> Just like your co-host, uh, Sonny informed me he's read four books in his whole life. So yeah. I'm not much of a reader, I have to admit, and, the, and about the only thing I read and enjoy reading these days is I always like to read a good rock and roll biography. Yes. Uh, so I do quite a bit of that, but yeah, I'm, I'm much more of the watch it kind of guy. And I, I remember when a lot of these Stephen King movies came out back in the day, people would always basically say the exact same thing, which is not as good as the book. You got to read the book. You got to read the book and, uh, yeah, I make it as good as the book. Otherwise I'm not going to enjoy it, I guess. <laughs> well, of the early Stephen King books, so like our movies that were adapted from the books up until Maximum Overdrive, what are your favorites? I liked uh, Christine quite a bit. Christine yeah. was a, a big uh, childhood flick for me. I really enjoyed that one. And um, shoot, what else did I like? I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank because I can't remember everything he put out at the time. What else was there? There was a couple of big ones that I really enjoyed. I, 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 I like. I would say the most obvious ones: Carrie, um, The Shining, Creepshow. The, sh- yeah. the Shining was awesome, and then I also enjoyed. Um, uh, what's the Kathy Bates flick? Oh, um, Misery. Misery was yeah. quite good. I enjoyed mm-hmm. that one a lot. So, mm-hmm. 
uh, yeah, all all that stuff, and uh, you know, until you just said it, I kind of forgot Creepshow. Yeah. Uh, was was a Stephen King thing. And all the little vignettes and everything, and he's actually in it. And like, yeah. yeah, those are those are fun. Yeah. Yeah. So going back to Maximum Overdrive, when you fr- did you see it in the theater, or was this a rental, or was it HBO, or something like that? No, it's absolutely a theater for okay. this one. Oh, wow. So you actually went. And so you're one of the few people actually saw it in the theater because a lot of people (laughs) discovered this on cable. So when you first saw it, were you like, oh, my God, I just paid to see this. (laughs) No. The funny thing is, is that my recollection, obviously, this is all recollection from back in the time. But my recollection was I enjoyed it quite a bit. Now, that might have been in part because of the soundtrack and because of ACDC, because this is prime time rock and roll for me Mm -hmm. uh, in high school. And. So, but I, I recall enjoying it. And then I recall a lot of people saying, yeah, that you're dumb because that was, <laughs> that was horrible. So I, that was my recollection from that period of time. Now, as I do, whenever I'm doing a show with you, Brian, I like to go and revisit a lot of these movies because obviously I haven't seen maximum overdrive in ages. Right. Uh, so I pulled it up and there it was, it was on uh Tubi, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I pulled it up and I watched it and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that when you ask me. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into the cast a little bit. You got Emilio Estevez. How, how did you feel about him as a lead character? And, and you know, he's coming off some big Brad Pack movies, and then he and he does this movie, which to me kind of downplayed uh, his, his acting skills. How did you feel about Emilio in this movie? I thought it was a strange casting choice. I mean, I knew Emilio like everybody else from the Brat Pack movies and stuff like that, so I understood what he was trying to do in terms of. Uh, uh, kind of expanding his catalog. He, I don't think that he had done anything really uh, horror flick based yeah. up until this point, but y- you know, just n- not necessarily the strongest character uh, in the, uh, in the whole thing. So, um, and, and I just realized that the last movie you did was another Emilio Estevez classic man at work. <laughs> <laughs> it was, and that was much more the Emilio Estevez that we know. So yes. that was a little bit more in that genre. And yes, I, I enjoyed that, uh, that flick, but this was a little bit of a strange casting for me. As for the other characters, what are the other characters that stood out for you and which ones did you really like? And which ones did you think were like, eh, I, I don't know why this person was cast there. You know, Pat Hingle is usually pretty good in what he does, and he always sort of typecast himself as kind of the old prick, right? Yes, exactly. Great character actor. <laughs> and and so I, I enjoy him. Oddly enough, uh, a character that sticks out is um, Lisa Simpson. Uh, yeah. Yar- Yarley, is it Yarley? Yearly Smith, yes. Yearly Smith. She sticks out uh, probably because of the ridiculous uniqueness of her voice. Yes. Uh, which, if people don't know, she's the voice of Lisa Simpson, obviously. Uh, but she did a lot of this type acting in the early days before I think the Simpsons became a real huge thing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so her character sticks out a little bit. It's kind of dumb looking back at it. And like I said, I have a whole new perspective on this flick after watching it uh, less than 24 hours ago. So, <laughs> uh, But yeah, she sticks out in my mind as a character. Uh, you know, the lead uh, uh, woman, the love interest with Emilio Estevez, I don't know her name and I don't know what else she's been in, but... She reminds me a whole lot of Jamie Gertz at the time. 
Yeah, good call. That's good. Call. Yeah, her name is Laura Harrington, and she really, besides this movie, uh, hasn't been a much. The other movie she was in, uh, she was the sister of um, Leonardo DiCaprio in What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Wow. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. Yeah. But <laughs> but, but doesn't she remind you a lot of Jamie Gertz? She does. Absolutely. She absolutely does. She's got that look, you know? Yeah. Uh, so that primarily uh, were the main characters that kind of sit uh, uh, on the top with me. Mm -hmm. The other movie that Yardley Smith was in uh, that was great. It was a fun 80s movie is Legend of Billie Jean. She was the friend in that as well. That's right. She was the yeah. uh, she was young. She was much younger than that. Yes. So we might as well get to the soundtrack because a lot of especially rock fans know this movie simply because of ACDC and it, the entire score, the entire soundtrack is all ACDC. Did you immediately buy this album because, you know, it had Who Made Who on it or did you already have a lot of the songs because it is almost like a pseudo greatest hits album? Yeah. You know what? I did not buy this record at all. And in mm. fact, and in fact, I didn't. And I was a huge ACDC fan. And I can't tell you my reasoning behind it uh, now, but I didn't buy the little um, I didn't buy who made who at all. I mean, mm. probably because it had a lot of the stuff on it, just like you said. But I remember initially not loving this song. But now it's kind of weird because now I absolutely love this song. Like this is a song that I defy anybody to not, you know, bob their head and want to sing when it comes on. Mm -hmm. And so I don't I don't know what where my head was at at the time. I have no idea. But uh, now it's part of my collection. I love it. Uh, and looking back on it, it's kind of interesting uh, because, you know, ACDC paid a big part in the Iron Man soundtrack as well. That's right. So they, That's right. they have kind of this history of, of doing actual uh, albums slash soundtracks where they're doing everything much like uh, Queen, I guess, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And with like Highlander and Flash. And yep. you bring up a good point about Who Made Who because you think about it, it is like one of actually their bigger hits that they just don't play anymore, especially live. Yeah, that's right. It, uh, you know, it reminds me song wise, and it's not that it sounds like it, but it just sort of reminds me of like a cousin or sister song to um, Heat Seeker, maybe. Yeah, which would come out next, which yeah. uh, was on Blow Up Your Video. That's right. Yep. How, how did you feel about the two um, instrumentals that are on it? Because they really never done instrumentals before. No, you're talking about all the sort of transitioning background music. Well, you have that, and you also have the two songs on the soundtrack, which would be DT and Chase the Ace. Uh, yeah. Okay. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can tell the, you can tell it's ACDC straight out from the guitar tones and yeah. the overall sound of the, of the music. Um, you know, I, instrumentals, they're kind of neither here nor there with me. It's not mm -hmm. something that I think a whole lot about. I just remember watching the movie, um, yesterday and going, you know, all this, all this transition music, all this background stuff is all ACDC because it could tell from the tones of the, of the guitar and uh, the production. So uh, I found that a little bit interesting that they provided everything as opposed to just songs for the soundtrack. Yeah. And I thought that was the great part of it because like the screeching, which would be like, you know, somebody getting stabbed or like, you know, kind of that stereotypical <laughs> score music is great. Like I loved it. Yeah. Uh, agreed. Agreed. It was very cool. 
and so, and, yeah, and unique for that. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, Stephen King was a huge ACDC fan, and Pie in the Sky asked them to do it, and they decided to do it, which uh, pretty pretty cool. So let's go back to to the movie and your thoughts about the plot and, and things that you just want to point out about good and bad about this film. Oh, are we asking me from yesterday's perspective? Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we, uh, well, I, we'll do both. Well, let me hear what what you you felt yesterday, and then compare it to when you first saw it, and does it hold up for you? Okay. Uh, so, what I thought yesterday when I watched this movie was, holy shit, this is really cheesy. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I just I don't remember it, and maybe it's because it is a uh, older movie, but I just don't remember my initial thoughts being, wow, this is really cheesy or there's just so much bad, you know, I, it doesn't hold up well as a complete movie. Uh, I thought plot line, I don't know how you are with horror films, but a lot of times I can't just let myself go in horror films and Hmm. I tend to go, I tend to go, well, shit, I would have just, I would right. have just done this. Yeah. You know, why the hell, you know, I, I like to put myself in the shoes of what's going on sometimes with these horror flicks and go, uh, well, why didn't you just punch that shark in the eye, you know, or something <laughs> like that, whatever it happens to be. Yeah. But, but with this movie in particular, I was just like, you know, I could have avoided all these damn things once I knew things were going crazy. Uh, and just gone somewhere and been not around machines, especially at that time, right? We're not as it, nowadays. It would be a lot more complex if oh, that yeah. mov- if that movie was shot today, because there are machines every fucking where, right? Yeah, he almost kind of called it in many ways, where the machines are like kind of taking over, like the internet. And maybe like you bring up a good point about horror films. When you're a kid, you kind of suspend belief, and right. and where now it's as you've seen way too many things, and you're just like, well, that's dumb, that's dumb, that's dumb. So, um, yeah, sometimes there's a, a fun part about being a kid where everything's new and fresh to you, even if it's stupid, you know? Yeah, agreed, a hundred percent. I yeah. remember, I remember loving. Uh, the initial scene in the movie with Stephen King uh, walking up to the ATM yes. and, the, and the sign overhead's going, fuck you, fuck yeah. you. you know, That's right. Yeah. You're, you're an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> Honey bun, or it was like sugar buns. They, this thing just called me an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I thought that was pretty fun. And, you know, Stephen King, I, I think at some point in time, he kind of quit doing the cameos in his own movies, didn't he? He did. He did. And and to be and this has been notorious. They talked about this and he admitted it. He was zonked out on cocaine the entire filming of this. And so um, I think he yeah, he just maybe after this movie, he decided I'm just going to stick with the with writing stuff. But, you know, he he never felt that any of his movies, uh, they were they, they were never well represented about how he wrote them. And so finally someone just said, well, why don't you just direct your own film? And but it's a lot harder than, than it looks, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I, you know, I think uh, as opposed to like a uh, Stan Lee that continued all the way up until his death sure. to do the cameos, Stephen King finally realized, all right, you know, what? I don't really need this 15 minutes of fame. Right. Uh, like he's not Alfred Hitchcock where the Hitchcock thing actually became a thing, you know? Right. Yeah. So, you know, but. I, I initially I loved that initial scene and I thought the overall plot, having seen some of his o- other movies, 
you know, just didn't necessarily feel like a horror movie to me, I guess, is my initial thought, you know, more so as a thriller or something like that. I don't know. Uh, that's just my personal feeling. You know, when I think of horror movies, I think of haunted houses or monsters or or something uh, of that nature, not necessarily a truck uh, driving down the highway trying to run me over. Although right. I like Although I like Christine, so there you go. Well, well it was almost like a you know horror slash sci-fi. You know, that's yeah. that's where I was trying to go, and and maybe that was the problem. It didn't know what it wanted to be. Well, you know, and here's the other thing is I don't really initially remember uh, the whole plot from when I first saw it. You know, although watching it 24 hours ago, it brought a lot of things like so this whole comet thing, and then. In the end, so it was aliens and it was the comet thing coming together that right. made these things take over, you know? And the the ending's totally, like, he gives, like, kind of an epilogue and it's still totally, it doesn't make sense. <laughs> so, yeah. So. Like, how can, how can they ride away on the boat and the boat had an engine? So, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> like, that that was safe? I don't know. Did you, uh, did you, uh, are you a reader? I am. I, not necessarily fiction, uh, mostly nonfiction, uh, which is unfortunate because my dad actually writes novels. So he's always oh. kind of disappointed. But yeah. Did you did you read this book? By chance I have or not. No? I have not. OK. Yeah. I was just curious. It would be nice to have the perspective of somebody that read the book as opposed to watching the movie. But uh, yeah, that's all I, I recall hearing is that, oh, it, well, it's the it's not the book and and right. that was that was on more than one occasion that wasn't just this movie you know? and i believe this was more of a short story which a lot of his movies were short stories like even like the um shawshank redemption was just a short story stand by me was a short story right god so. man so many great movies oh. especially when he got away from like necessarily the the horror flick yeah. thing man yeah. shawshank and the green green mile green was mile. him too right yes absolutely green Green Mile, Stand By Me, a really, really, really good movies. Yes, absolutely. Well, as always, thank you so much, Stephen. We, I know you're going to be back on soon. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Brian. I appreciate you. Shit. Bastard. Hell's bells. <laughs>
gotta get some gas. That's good, cause I got to go to the ladies. Can I come in and watch? No, you can't come in and watch. Ouch. Shoot. No! Vroom, vroom. <laughs> You're cute. <laughs> yeah? Am I? Not that cute. Well, maybe I'll grow on you. <laughs> Look at that. There's nothing. You ever see that much nothing at 10.15 in the morning, hero? Name's Bill. Hi, Bill. Brett.
on, Bill. To the marina. We're close. Right there, that's the one I was thinking about. Well, we better hurry up. Let's get in line. 